Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. It's a thought that's crossed many a desk jockey's mind. Man, I'd love to get out of this office, get out from under the fluorescent lighting, get outside and do something with my hands, like maybe build a cabin in the woods. Well, my guest had these thoughts, and unlike most, they actually pulled the trigger on their long-standing daydream. Their names are Brian Schatz and Patrick Hutchinson, and in today's episode, they share the experience they had as a result in which they wrote about in a recent article for Outside Magazine. We begin our conversation with how the idea of quitting their respective jobs as a reporter and copywriter to build a cabin together in the Cascades began as a joke between these two then-burned-out 30-something friends and how it slowly became a real, if still sketchy, plan to make it happen. Brian and Pat shared the idyllic way they thought the project would go, and when the reality of how much Charter would be set in. We discussed the unexpected challenges that arose, how the tensions of constantly working together affected the relationship, and how they kept an income coming in while on hiatus from full-time employment. We get into how long the cabin, which they originally thought would just take two months to build, actually took to finish, the extent to which they went over budget, and how they finally felt when it was done, and what they ultimately decided to do with the cabin in the end. We end our conversation with what, despite everything that went wrong, Brian and Pat gained from the experience and what they plan to do next. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash cabin build. All right, Brian Schatz, Pat Hutchinson, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Pat. All right, so for people who, uh, you know, our podcast listeners who read The Art of Manliness and have been reading it for a long time, they're probably familiar with your names because both of you, well, Pat, you're a regular contributor right now. You've been doing stuff for us on the site since 2016. And we were introduced to you by Brian who did some guests, some articles for us back in 2010. I was looking at this, Brian. I think one of the things you did for us was you did a primer on Muay Thai and your experience yes, uh, in Thailand right. to learn Muay Thai. And that was 2010. So we're coming up on 10 years that you did that. Wow. Such a long time ago. That was fun. It was fun. Well, the reason I, I brought you on the show, because I read an article on Outside Online about a crazy project that you guys did together because uh, you guys are friends that I think a lot of guys have thought about, you know, one of those, it's one of those conversations you have when you're having drinks and you're like, wouldn't it be cool if we built a cabin in the middle of nowhere? And you guys had this conversation and you actually took action and decided to build a cabin in the woods. Let's talk about the background of it. When did you guys start floating this idea of building your own cabin? <laughs> So I actually had to go back and look through old messages between Brian and I in kind of thinking about, you know, where it all started. And it had started when shortly after we had met, Brian and I were both trying to become sort of adventure journalists of some sort. And I had an idea to build a cob house, which is like a house made out of hay and mud, and that Brian would help me build it and with the ultimate goal of writing a story about it. And then, you know, I think as the years went on, it became more and more about just building some kind of small cabin and less and less about writing a story about it. I think in part because the reason to build it became more and more about not writing anymore. <laughs> and did it sort of kind of off like, was it sort of like a joke and then it eventually became like a real thing? Yeah, it's funny to hear back now that it was originally a story idea because I'd completely erased that from my memory for the longest time. All I can remember is us kind of like sending each other ideas back and forth about different types of professions. And the cabin idea is one that 
sort of stuck longer than the rest. And it became, you know, just like increasingly this serious thing. I remember at one point, I was still kind of thinking of it as a joke. And Pat, I think, was starting to think of it in an increasingly real way. And he was, you know, saying things like, what if we just start a tiny home company and we'll build tiny homes and sell them? And I thought, well, that's that sounds really cool, but I have no idea how to do it. No idea where we would do it, where we would store these tiny homes or who we would sell them to. And it just seemed like this ridiculous thing. And then over time, it became increasingly serious and morphed a few times until, you know, we landed on the idea of a cabin. And what I love it too about you guys in the article about kind of how kind of self-aware you were of this, because you talked about one of the things you were afraid of, both of you, when you decided, yeah, we're, gonna, we're actually going to do this was that you were going to look like the sort of insufferable millennials who are trying to live an authentic life. And so they're going to go out and build it a cabin. I mean, how did you overcome that fear of how you'd look and just decide, we're going to go for it? Uh, it's funny. I think there's something incredibly cliche about what we did, right? Like there, there are many stories like these. There's, you know, go on Instagram and you see just a gazillion pictures of people out there building cabins. And I think originally it was a little bit less about the being insufferable for me and more just, you know, what are my friends and family going to think? Am I just throwing my future away to kind of chase this dream that, you know, frankly, even at the time, neither of us knew, you know, how it would work out or whether or not we would even really enjoy it. We had this inkling. So for me, I think it was more a matter of like overcoming I don't know, convincing, say, my parents and my friends that like, you know, I'm not totally throwing my life away and or maybe I am, but I think it's going to be worth it. And then later, you know, we were approached by outside to write about it. And then it really kind of dawned on us that, yeah, like we're just a couple of millennials just chasing dreams, you know, but it just felt worth it. We had been in careers for quite a long time that we eventually sort of came to I don't know if I don't think I'd go as far as resent, but just we were ready for a change and it was it was worth it to go ahead and give it a try, regardless of how it would look. Parents are obviously their concerns like what is my what are my kids doing? They should be have a job with health insurance. But also like do you guys have significant others in your life who you this was a decision that affected them as well? Yeah, definitely. We both have girlfriends and I think uh a lot of the pressure that we put on ourselves about, you know what are people going to think about this? Is this a terrible idea? I think that was mostly sort of self-imposed and both of our girlfriends were remarkably supportive. And actually, so my father was a carpenter much of his life and became a, a home inspector. And when he found out we were doing this, he was, I think he was probably a little bit wary, but he also every night before he went to sleep, he would think about things that we would need to know how to do. And he kept sort of a journal of how-tos. And then he sent me that journal. And it was, you know, things like how to make sure your foundation is square and plumb and how to frame walls and, and some of the different techniques to do. So all around, super supportive people. You guys had this idea, you start floating it, and you start in 2013, you guys do some, kind of get some background experience. Pat, you bought a cabin, an already built cabin back in 2013. And both of you kind of worked on that to, I don't know, get your hands dirty with this idea, right? Yeah. And to call it an already built cabin is sort of, I've, I've kind of 
think of it as like a if you know that story stone soup as a kid where it's just like a bunch of bandits come together and they're like oh we'll make some soup and you know we just need a stone and you know what really goes good with stone soup is a potato and they sort of like trick the townspeople into making a soup by just bringing all this mishmash ingredients in that's sort of how the cabin was it really felt like someone had you know just like found a couple pieces of wood on the highway brought them up on a weekend you know had a few beers and nailed them together so nothing matched nothing was square nothing was level and you know everything was about 30 percent completed so it was a great opportunity to sort of see like an x-ray of a poorly built cabin and then apply you know what was very little experience on top of that but it was a great learning experience for myself and for brian and for a bunch of friends you know who all you know didn't really have building experience and you know couldn't really test out their skills on, you know, an an apartment that they were renting in the city. So it was kind of a nice, like, bunny hill that we could sort of screw up on it. It didn't matter. Yeah, and to Pat's credit, he, you know, he had just bought this thing. And it is funny. It's like, to say it's fully built was both accurate and very generous. But Pat basically let us just try things out. And if we messed things up, he didn't get mad at us. There were no... It truly was just kind of like, I don't know, let's see what happens here. Throw a wall up. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't, oh, well. Did both of you have a construction experience before this? Uh, I had a little bit. My father's a contractor and now a home inspector. And so I'd, you know, growing up, I'd go out and do some jobs with him. Nothing too major. Did a few roofs and, you know, various gosh, I don't even remember at the time. Maybe we framed some walls, uh, small stuff, nothing major. And how about you, Yeah, Pat? same same for me. I think it was, you know, I built a lot of tree houses as a kid. Um, but, <laughs> you know, as an adult, it was more like, you know, going home for, for Christmas and my mom, you know, needs something fixed. And so I'd sort of, you know, try my hand at, you know, nailing a couple of boards together or something like that. But very little before, before buying that cabin. Although I did watch a lot of this old house uh, <laughs> on PBS for a, a bunch of years and continue to. <laughs> It's fantastic. Okay. So, and, and with this house, so you guys, you guys kind of completed it. I mean, we put in that quotation marks, like what did you do with the, the, the cabin in 2013 after you, you did what you want with it? We just used it a lot. I made a bunch of keys and then handed keys out to, you know, seven or eight really close friends that I've got up here and just sort of said, you know, like, here's the, here are the directions, you know, where the cabin is, you know, how to take care of it. And so I would say, you know, for the, seven or eight years that I owned it, people were up there using it probably, you know, every other weekend at least. All right. So you ended up selling it eventually. Fast forward to 2018. This is when you guys finally decided all the talk you've been having, you know, going back and forth with potential plans, you guys decided you're going to build a cabin from scratch. How did that, I mean, did you guys have an idea of like what you wanted the cabin to look like when you started off? Or was it one of those things like, we're just going to get started and we're going to figure this out as we go. I think we had a few different ideas that constantly changed. I remember for a real long time, we were sending each other pictures of A-frames. And so at first it was like, all right, we're definitely going to build an A-frame. And then we came to realize that I think the only thing that we had decided concretely was the general square footage, which was, I think, 384. Is that right, Pat? Yeah. Something like that. Anyways, and we realized that if we built an A-frame on the footprint that we were thinking, it was going to be really small inside. So that changed after, I believe, we already had the subfloor in. 
So we'd like kicked off uh, a whole bunch of different ideas and we're still planning and drawing things out well into after we started. And when you first started, did you guys set a budget for yourself when you decided we're doing this? <laughs> yeah, you could call. I mean, we, we told ourselves that we were going to spend no more than $20,000. I mean, really the only thing it was based on was that we didn't want to spend more than $20,000. And so we thought that that seemed like more money than either of us had independently. And <laughs> it must be enough to build a cabin. <laughs> It was, and, and that did that include the property as well? That twenty thousand? Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, so let's talk about that. Where did you guys end up buying property for your build? We bought it in the same general area that my little cabin was in, and we, you know, basically got word that a property was going to be up for auction, and so put it in a super low offer, hoping you know that we would get it, and sort of taking it as a, as a sign from the universe that. You know, we were supposed to be doing this if it worked out, and it did. All right, so this is in Washington, right? That's right, yeah. The, so the sort of central cascades of, of Washington on the west side of the mountains. All right, so you guys got the property pretty cheap. Was it, I think it was like a lowball offer. It was like 3000 or something like that, and you were like, that's not going to happen. Yeah. yeah, exactly. All right, so you got the property. What was the first thing you, you did when you started building? Like, Did you just take the initial plan that you're, you're going to build a small A-frame and just start you know, we're going to, we have the plan, we have the blueprints, we're going to do exactly what the blueprints say? Well, we, we didn't have any blueprints, that's for sure. Everything was sketched out on uh, paper and pencil. And I think once we actually got the land was the sort of, oh crap moment, now we actually need to figure out what we're doing. And so we just started researching as much as we could on the internet, watching, you know, tons of YouTube. I remember Pat was when it came to the foundation, was researching a lot about weight loads, you know, how many like posts and piers you would need and how much concrete and at what depth. So it was kind of, you know, when you got to turn in your homework and classes the next day, that kind of feeling. And then also, I think it was, you talk about too, um, as you were starting to prepare the build, you guys together had this idea of what building a cabin and, you know, in the Washington woods would be like. And it was really idyllic. I mean, how did you imagine cabin building in the middle of nowhere would be like? I mean, for me, I I just imagine all of these beautiful pictures you see. And I mean, I guess our experience up there to an extent also on our building weekends on Pat's first little cabin didn't really matter too much if we messed up. Most of the time when I went up there, I was really lucky and it was beautiful weather. The river is always running at like a nice pace. Um, so just like this beautiful area and a great time with friends. And I think I had it in my mind that it would certainly be difficult and we wanted it to be difficult, but it would be totally manageable and we'd have time for for hikes and you know having as much coffee in the morning as we want and sort of leisurely getting over to the job site, doing a great job during the day and then having time to like play in the river or whatever else afterwards. And that pretty quickly came to an end. I think that lasted about two or three days. Yeah, like what was the the moment where you realized like, oh crap, this is going to be a lot harder than I thought it was going to be? Hmm. I mean, it might have been the, I think the very first couple of days we were basically just digging holes and toiling in the mud and it was super fun. We were having a great time. And then it might have been after kind of putting in the first foundation posts and building up to the subfloor where we had like a really long day that was really 
difficult and sort of troubling. A few things went wrong and we had to kind of wrap our heads around how to make it right. And our, our idea of how long it would take was just nowhere near realistic. And I think that's when it kind of started to dawn on us that, you know, maybe we're in over our heads and we've, we're going to have to like actually put in some work to get this thing done. Well, and the thing to note too, is that you, there was no electricity out there. <laughs> and there was no water. So like you had, there's these pictures in, on the, the article of you, like there's a, you know, you had to basically go down to the creek and climb up this giant hill with just big <laughs> buckets of water so you can get the water to mix concrete. Yep. Yeah. I think that- <laughs> in hindsight, you know, we ended up installing a 1500 gallon water tank at the, at the cabin as one of like, the finishing touches. <laughs> and uh, in hindsight, we should have maybe done that first. So yeah, and anytime we needed water for anything, you know, especially mixing concrete, it was, you know, going down to the river with a big five-gallon jug, filling it up, which required getting into the river deep enough so that we could actually get it under there. And we also did this in the middle of winter to mix up concrete for the hearth under the wood stove. So I think literally trudging through snow to get into the river and fill up those jugs. Well, let's, let's backtrack. When did, when, what part of 2018 did you guys start the cabin? Was it like spring, summer? It was June 2nd. June 2nd, right? June 2nd, a day in infamy. Um, <laughs> yeah. and it was then, supposed uh, to be June 1st and something came up. Something came up. What. And when did you, uh, like you guys started in June, you got, were you expected to be, have this, you know, done and wrapped up by the end of summer? Yeah, I had a four month leave and I had budgeted a few weeks at the end or so I thought for like a little vacation time, which, you know, wasn't at all realistic. But yeah, we thought we would be done, I think, by the end of August, if that's right. Yeah. All right. And and, and then yeah, very quickly, you realize that's not going to happen. And something you note, both of you note in the article is that the thing that really threw you guys off were like, there's all these little small things that you overlooked before you even started working on it that just sucked up all your time. I imagine one of them is getting water to mix concrete was one of those small things. Any other like things that they're really small, but they just, they piled on each other that just really suck a lot of, sucked a lot of time uh, from your work day. Uh, Man, getting materials was always a challenge, especially because we didn't have cell phone reception at the site. And so a lot of times, you know, trying to check, you know, how to do something required like, oh, we, we need to drive into cell phone reception for half an hour. And then you get into reception and, you know, to like watch a video on how to do something. And then you forget exactly what, you know, your situation is. So we drive back to the site to look at it, take more pictures and then back to cell reception. And then, you know, you're into town to get materials, but the first hardware store doesn't actually have what, you know, they say they do online. So then you drive to another hardware store and it's just these days unravel like instantly. And, you know, you spent seven hours just figuring out, you know, how to screw a couple of things together and find the screws to do it. And then the day is over and it's dark and you don't have electricity, so you can't see anything. (laughs) And, you know, you only need two or three days like that to realize, you know, that this project could take three or four times longer than, you know, you ever expected it to. There's also some like small things that you just don't realize when you're getting into something. So something that would happen would be, I guess later on, once the cabin was built up higher, you know, we'd need ladders. And so you'd throw some ladders up, but it's on a really sloped hill. And so the ladder would be pitched to an angle. And so you'd have to dig out a patch of the hill to get the ladder 
you know, lined up with the cabin so that you could actually go up to it. And only later did I realize that you can actually get these little like leg extensions on the bottom of your ladder so that if you're on a slope, you just extend that one leg and then you're good. But we didn't realize that. So we wasted, you know, tons of time just like digging holes in the side of the hill so that our ladder would sit properly. Small things like that add up too. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents, to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. 
Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. How long were your work days when you finally, you guys kind of finally got in the groove of, of your working schedule? They felt very long. Yeah, I think they basically became just whatever daylight hours were. So at yeah. the peak of summer, that could be, you know, up here in Washington, like, you know, 6 a.m. until 10 o'clock at night. And were you guys sleeping out by the, at the cabin site during the summer? No, actually, at this time, Pat still had his small off-grid cabin that he had purchased in 2013. So we'd retire there every night. Every night. But then wake up at 6 o'clock. But you didn't have time to enjoy your coffee and look at the sunrise. You just had to get back to <laughs> digging a hole. There was no enjoying sunrises. No. <laughs> Some sunsets on occasion. Well, and during this time, I mean, so you guys you kind of budgeted that you wouldn't be working or you'd have a leave of absence from your, your job, but you also had to keep money coming in because you guys quickly realized this is going to cost more than we thought. So what did you guys do to keep money coming in so you keep the build going? Why don't you take it, Pat? You had to do a lot more of this. Yeah. So I had had quit my job. So the only way to keep money coming in was doing freelance copywriting, including for the art of manliness. So on select nights that, you know, I had to do work or Brian had to do work, we would, you know, go from the build site to a bar that was about half an hour down the road. And that was open until like midnight or so. And so at, you know, nine or 10 at night, we'd be sitting down for dinner and to start, you know, workday number two and write, you know, marketing copy or art of manliness articles until, you know, 12 or 1230 at night. And then try to get back to the cabin and get some sleep. Well, yeah, well, we really, we really appreciate it. And like, I, I, during this time, I don't <laughs> think you really, you mentioned it all that much. I think you might've in a few emails, like, yeah, I'm building a cabin. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, <laughs> I didn't know the extent of like what that actually meant until I read yeah. this article. Yeah. Pat in particular was really grinding it out. I had some freelance writing to do, but I, you know, I had taken my leave and I had kind of cashed out on some vacation hours that I had piled up. And so I was in a, slightly more comfortable position, I guess, in that I, I at least wasn't concerned about what would happen at the end of the build because I knew I had a job to go back to. So I could really sort of drain the account down pretty far. All right. So you guys started making progress. You guys got the floor, the foundation laid, started getting some walls. Uh, well, before you got to the walls, there's this part in this in the build where you had to put in place the ridge beam. Ridge beam. And I like this story because I think it's it's a it exemplifies some of the improvisation you guys had to do because like you like you just said you're describing how you're learning on the fly you'd have to go in town get cell reception watch a YouTube video then go back and then try it the ridge beam this is a really really important part of the cabin and a really hard part to put on a structure for those who aren't familiar uh, with what a ridge beam is what is that 
what makes it so hard to put into place and what did you guys do to get that in place? So, yeah, so the ridge beam is essentially, you know, you're building the cabin up, you've got your, you know, floor and you've got your walls and then it's all got to come back together to get closed in, you know, on the roof. And so the ridge beam is sort of that initial, you know, very big piece of timber that goes across the top of the cabin that all of your rafters, that all the rest of the roof can attach to and sort of stitch everything back. It's sort of like the the backbone of the cabin. And I guess I'm still not certain how people, you know, are supposed to put these in. Uh, <laughs> but ours was, um, I think, about 28 feet long. And how much did it weigh? Yeah, I think it it's, probably weighed about two, yeah, maybe 250 or 300 pounds. And Which, so it was impossible for. I mean, we struggled to lift it, the two of us, on the ground. And so the idea of getting it up, you know, 18 feet above our heads into a very narrow slot that it had to fit in was, it was just one of those things that we just sort of ignored until the day that we had to do it. Uh, because I don't think that we could comprehend how it was actually going to happen. And so what did you guys end up doing? I had sort of dreamed up this, uh, <laughs> I think what Brian eventually got like a slow motion catapult. So sort of built this like A-shaped structure out of two by fours and then tied one end of the ridge beam to that. And then we sort of pushed pushed that A-frame structure up bit by bit, you know, to sort of pull the ridge beam up. We got it in one end and then to get it into the other end was sort of a combo of that. Plus we had the thing tied like to my car at one point that we were like, you know, up on the hill trying to drag it upwards into place. We had a neighbor come down with some come-along straps to to use those and, and pull in a different way. And I remember there was one point when we had so many different things that we had just made up on the fly to help push this thing up and hold it in place. And at one point we looked at it and nothing was touching the ground anymore. <laughs> and we didn't understand what was holding it up. <laughs> and then it was like, all of a sudden we all just sort of like, all right, everybody back away. Let's look at this thing from 20 or 30 feet because it could fall at any second. Cause we don't understand how it's being held up right now. <laughs> and you called this improvisation. I thought it was funny. You, you guys called this improvisation. You called it jazz. We're going to, we're going to use some jazz to get this ridge beam up. Yeah. 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 Jazz was was the word that we use anytime we didn't know how to do something and knew that we were just going to sort of, you know, make it up and see, you know, if we could get it to work. There was a lot of jazz. Was there a lot of jazz? Was that like most of the build it was just it was just jazz the entire time. Yeah. The entire yeah, the entire cabin was jazz essentially. <laughs> I mean, besides the ridge beam, was there like another thing part of the cabin where you just like you had to just wing it and to say, "Okay, we'll see how it turns out." You know, to a certain extent, we did we did that with a lot, I mean, we built the cabin, you know, to code. We've got, you know, Brian's dad to sort of use as a resource because he inspects homes. And so, you know, the, the place was built to code, but what sort of hurt us in the long run was winging it in the way of saying like, oh, it'd be cool if this wall was a little shorter, you know, instead of being eight feet, let's make it like seven and a half, you know, not realizing in the moment that, okay, well, you know, all boards come in standard lengths of eight feet. All plywood comes in standard lengths of eight feet. You know, everything is eight feet and people build th walls at eight feet for a reason. 
And so now you can't just, you know, throw this material up. You have to custom cut every single board that you put in. And I think that we actually took some time to think about it once and realized that there's not a single standard piece of lumber in the entire cabin. (laughs) (laughs) That might be true. Maybe a couple sheets of plywood at some point, but in, you know, like a, a home or a house or a cabin or whatever is sort of built in layers, right? You have like the framing and then you have the interior wall cladding. You've got to sheave it and then you put the exterior finishes on. And so by, you know, cutting our studs shorter than their natural length, you had to do that at every single stage of the build. So it just was this compounding problem over and over and over again. Making your life harder. <laughs> yeah. Than it needed to be. Well, you guys are you guys are friends. You guys have been friends for a long time. How did you all work together during the the build? Mostly good. Not always good. There's there's a scene in the article that we wrote about where, you know, different people have different jobs. And so when we're getting the roof in, one person would be up on the roof and the other person would be down on the ground. And the person on the roof is sort of, uh, it's impossible for them to really get anything for themselves because they're on the roof, right? So they're always yelling at the person on the ground, you know, can you get my tape measure again? Because I dropped it for the fourth time. Or, you know, can you get me a sheet of plywood or whatever it is, cut it this length. And then if it's not quite right, you send that back down. And meanwhile, the person on the ground is just like running all over the place, making all the cuts, fetching all of the tools. And, you know, moments like that can get really tense, especially when it's not all coming together. Right. And so there were definitely times when we, I don't think we ever like yelled at each other, but we would get pretty passive aggressive or just kind of like, just kind of mean to each other. And, you know, that could last for anywhere between like an hour or a day. And eventually it would be fine. We'd, you know, have a good laugh about it later on and make up. But there were some moments for sure. And was it like the disagreements where they just kind of, or like the, the tension was just about, was it about small things? Do you guys ever have big disagreements, but like the big picture with the, the project? You know, I think the big picture project stuff, Brian and I were just talking about uh, the other day that it seemed... You know, we'd put on these really long days and a lot of them back to back to back. And every once in a while, we'd, you know, really just realize that we needed even an afternoon just away from the project. And so we might take like on those days, like a longer hike or something and just sort of talk about, you know, really, you know, are you still doing okay with this project? It's taking much longer. It's costing a lot more. Um, You know, you've not been home for a month and a half or whatever it is and really try and check in and make sure that we were doing fine. And I think, you know, for the, on the grander scheme of things, we were always pretty aligned. And most of the disagreements came from, you know, cause Brian wanted me to cut a rafter for the eighth time. And it was like, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, all you had to me, do was get is it, it right. Me not cutting time. it right. Or is it you not measuring it right? What are we really doing here? Are you it was root- definitely you not cutting it right. <laughs> <laughs> Or the roof guy wanting something too much, right? It's like, bring up all the nails, roof guy. Yeah, and if it's not obvious, Brian was usually roof guy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you guys started this in June. You thought it'd be done, wrapped up by the end of August. At what point did you realize that 
it wouldn't be August that this thing would be finished. <laughs> Probably pretty close to August yeah. or like five <laughs> days after starting. <laughs> like what what did the cabin look like in August? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, did you have did you have the ridge beam in place at this point? I think it would have been in August that we got the ridge beam in place. But the you know, all the rafters yeah. weren't in, the you know, roof had not been covered in, you know, plywood or, or tongue and groove boards that we used to cover it. I don't think we finished the roof until early October. Is that right, Brian? Or was it late September? Uh, I think you're right about early October by the time I find because I remember that the uh the sort of fall storms were well underway and we were sort of racing against a really big rainstorm that had been sort of building for a few days. And I, if I remember correctly, we got the last, you know, screw of the roof in, I mean, just, you know, minutes or hours before like a huge rainstorm came. And no, it was October. Did actually the last half of the roof, that entire day that we were working on it, it was pouring down rain. Oh, <laughs> My memory is notoriously bad. I just wanted to forget that. It wasn't a good, wasn't a good <laughs> yeah, memory. Yeah, exactly. See, I've shut out certain things. Well, so Brian, you had you had your leave until August. Did you have to go back to work in September? I did. Yeah, I returned to work. Oh, um, let's see. Was it? Uh, well, no. So I had my leave a bit longer than I had thought the build would take. So I, we thought that the build would end sometime in August, and then I would have a few more weeks, basically, to, um, I think what I originally had planned was to spend some time with my girlfriend since I would have been gone for so long. And that time basically just got turned into continuing working on the cabin. And then eventually I did go back to work, and I would just, you know, basically go up for really long weekends, or I'd take a week off here and there. If it's not already obvious, my bosses were remarkably generous and patient with me for this whole thing. Well, and at this point, like, and you know, when you decided you had to go keep building even into the the fall, possibly the winter, were there moments where you're like, we should probably just give up, uh, move on? <laughs> we're doing sunk cost fallacy at this point, right? We're <laughs> we're just we're going to keep doing this because, but it's just costing us too much time and money. Did you guys have those moments? I don't think I ever got to the place where I fully wanted to quit. I mean, it probably would have been wise at several different points. But I ultimately, I mean, this even though it was, you know, pretty challenging at times and hard on relationships, ultimately I just really really enjoyed it and every time I needed to go back up, I looked forward to doing so. And it kind of I mean, at some point, you know, eventually you'll you'll run out of money or you'll run out of time and I guess we just kind of squeaked by and it always felt worth it to keep going. And Pat, did you have any quit moments or were you just like, no, I'm going to finish this? You're, you knew that from the beginning. No. I mean, I think the more that we, that we worked on it, the more clear it became to me that it was like 100% what I wanted to be doing with my days. And that if there were any way to combine, you know, seeing family and friends into the same lifestyle, that that is what I wanted to do with my life. And so I think, as Brian said, quitting never really was something I thought about because it was, I kind of realized that I would be working on the cabin at the cost of, you know, pretty much everything else that was going on. And then you also mentioned you guys didn't want to be, I didn't know this was a thing, but apparently in Washington, the wilderness, there's lots of unfinished cabins because people, they ran out of money or they just say, I don't, this isn't worth it. And you, you didn't want to be one of those guys. 
Yeah, that's true. I mean, there are a bunch of cabins, even in that immediate area that, you know, you see and and maybe they got halfway through on the interior or they, they built up to the roof and, and didn't go any further. And, you know, some of them look pretty good and others are just totally thrashed and look like they'd been there forever. And they each one just sort of represented um, like a broken dream, perhaps. And in as depressing and sad as it was to kind of see those, I think they also fueled us to keep going and make sure that this cabin wouldn't be another one of those. So you went into fall. Did it go into the, the construction go into winter as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, you mentioned that. So you had to actually go. Yeah, you said that you had to go down the river in the, the ice cold river to get uh, water for cement to make the, the platform for the uh, stove. Yeah. And, and that cement actually, so there was a pretty big snowstorm on that trip. And we had to, we strapped on snowshoes because we couldn't drive up to the cabin. There was too much snow. And we piled all of the bags of concrete into sleds and just like towed them up to the cabin. So it was pretty deep. So deep I mean, right. And I mean, besides going over budget on time, I mean, did you guys go over budget on money as well? Oh yeah. More than double. <laughs> so where, where did you guys get the funds? Did you have to take out a loan from a bank or did you just have to you know, go into savings? Did you start GoFundMe? What'd you guys do? You know, I returned back to work. And so I basically took everything that I wasn't using for just my life and import it back into the cabin. We also had a very generous buddy, our ah, buddy right. Dan, who had agreed from the start. You know, he was sort of looking for an investment and he's not one, I think, to be into the idea of just putting his money into into stocks or something like that. And so he thought that we would be a good investment and this project would be a good investment. And so he was blindly giving us, you know, thousands of dollars. He put in, you know, a third of all the costs to help us realize realize this project, you know, hoping that we'd eventually be able to sell it and he'd get some sort of return. I'm not entirely sure it was even necessarily an investment for him because originally we weren't even sure whether or not we would sell it. You know, we, we had talked right, about right. maybe throwing it on Airbnb, maybe we'd all keep it and it would just be this fun cabin that we all got to, you know, hang out in on weekends. Nonetheless, I, you know, he did uh, go in as a sort of a third part uh, financial backer and was both generous in that and also generous in not getting too upset that it was taking us longer and longer and costing more and more. He was uh, yet another very supportive person in this process. Yeah. He was a romantic like you guys. He had the, he, he caught the vision. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So when did you guys finally finish the cabin? You started in June, 2018. When did you wrap it up? I think we stopped working on it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> In early July of 2019. And that became a hard thing is really knowing, you know, like when is when is a cabin done? But I think early July is when we we kind of put the last finishing touches on it, except for, you know, starting to bring in furniture and things like that. We had a big, you know, party. I brought the fog machine in. We had some, you know, a bunch of friends up and sort of <laughs> christened the cabin. I mean, so what did it feel like when you guys finally decided, okay, this is a year almost over a year since you started, what did it feel like to finally think, I'm, gonna, I'm done with this? Like, what, was it anticlimactic or did, it, did you feel some closure? What was that like? Oh, man, it's tricky. I think it was a huge relief for me. It was also, it kind of made me think like, all right, how do I 
get to do this again. You know, when we decided to sell it, we had a lot of people ask, like, are you going to miss it? Do you feel bad about selling it? And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Pat, but I think for both of us, in the end, it was a lot less about the end product and more about the process. And as much as we liked, you know, what it turned into, for me, it was going to be missing actually building it and being up there with, you know, close friends doing something that we really enjoyed. Was that for you the same sort of uh, sentiment for you, Pat? Yeah, I would say that, you know, the the last day that Brian and I actually worked on it, you know, was a much sadder day than the day that we, you know, handed over the keys to it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, now what? <laughs> right, right. Well, and selling it was was kind of a hassle too, because, because it doesn't have indoor plumbing, right? People couldn't uh, get a house loan. A more, you couldn't mortgage it. So you had to find someone who was willing to pay cash just to buy the thing. Yeah, it was either cash or we essentially that was, did- We were hoping to find someone that was going to pay cash. And eventually we had to do seller financing. So essentially we become the bank and you know someone gives us a down payment and then makes payments to us every month. And fortunately, I finally found a couple that were up for that and they've actually paid it off now. Full and they couldn't have uh, gone to a better a better couple of people. They've really done a lot to the cabin and really embraced it and absolutely love it. And yeah, it's great seeing. They've also uh, thrown it up on Airbnb for times when they're not using it themselves. So if people are interested, they could check that out. Right. So the title of the article is "We Quit Our Jobs to Build a Cabin." Everything went wrong. And, you know, we highlighted some of the stuff that went wrong, but it sounds like both of you, you guys, it wasn't the end product that this was all about the experience. Like you, it was in the end, it was worth it to you guys. Right. Yeah, definitely. hundred percent. So what are you going to do? So people ask you, what are you going to do now? Are you, are you guys planning another cabin build? You guys gluttons for punishment? <laughs> we indeed are. You know, we would, we had hoped maybe this fall would be a, a time to start again. And uh, that's not happening. You know, coronavirus and, and other. We got the wildfires out there. Wildfires. Too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of disruption going on right now, obviously. So we, we definitely are hoping to. And we're hoping to now in the spring. I guess we'll kind of see, you know, what spring brings. But uh, that's the idea. And I mean, what would you guys do differently? This, I mean, are you, is it going to be one of those things? Here's one of the things I've done with like DIY projects is that I've done the same sort of thing that you guys do on a much smaller scale. And I'm not building a cabin, but like I want to learn how to do something. I watch YouTube videos. I learn how to do it. And then because I don't have to do that thing ever again, when I do have to do it again, I completely forget. And I have to go through the process all over again. <laughs> do you think that's going to happen to you guys? Or do you guys think you learn some things that you will kind of cut down on <laughs> that having to go to get cell reception to watch a YouTube video? Right, right. I'd like to think we've learned some things. You know, also between then and now, we've both have kind of continued uh, not doing the same thing, but similar things. Like I mentioned, I'm in woodworking school right now. We're actually, Pat and I just started doing a sort of backyard office build out for some folks down near where I live. And Pat works for a company that builds these really cool travel trailers. They're kind of these retro trailers that you could glamp in. And so it's not the same as, you know, sort of cabin construction, but we're still, you know, getting our reps in to some extent. So hopefully it won't be too, we won't be too rusty. And I mean, how do you guys think the experience changed you? Like what, like, can looking back on it and you've done some introspection, like how have you grown because of this experience? Oh man, 
you know, I think it taught me sort of the thing that I had suspected for a lot of years is that, you know, being at a desk, you know, working on a computer is, is just not something that I can do long term. And that, you know, I really value spending my days as actively as possible. I think it also reminded me, you know, just sort of how much I enjoy really giving myself big challenges, putting myself in situations where, you know, I'm uncomfortable and sort of need to to rise to the occasion kind of things and just how, you know, valuable and meaningful those, you know, growing and learning experiences can be and, you know, how kind of toxic it can feel, you know, to sort of just get comfortable and live out your days sort of without ever challenging yourself that I've, you know, tried to apply that after the cabin and hopefully am. But I think that it was a great experience for reminding myself of all those things. And Brian, for you, do you need any big lesson takeaways from that experience? I mean, I really have to echo Pat in that one of the reasons I think that we were drawn to this to begin with is we, you know, like we mentioned, we had both been in jobs for uh, a number of years and for a variety of reasons, we're, you know, looking for something new. And I think for me, I really kind of needed a big challenge. I felt like I hadn't really stretched myself in, in a long time. I had been doing, you know, much the same thing for several years. And building this cabin definitely stretched us. And I think the fact that in the end we pulled it off was sort of a relief because I think I had gotten to a point that I really wasn't sure if I was capable of doing something like that anymore because I had just kind of, you know, gotten into a routine. And so that in particular resonates. And I think, you know, constantly challenging yourself to the degree that you can is super important. And I want to keep that up. All right. So the article is called, We Quit Our Jobs to Build a Cabin. Everything Went Wrong. It's available on outsideonline.com. Are there anywhere people can go to follow you guys and your exploits building trailers, doing woodworking or your next cabin build or anywhere can people follow you at? We do have an Instagram page that is very sparsely updated, but hopefully we'll be doing more of that. And that is at Landing Pad Cabins. At Landing Pad Cabins on Instagram. Well, Brian Schatz, Pat Hutchinson, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. Thanks a lot, Brett. My guests there are Brian Schatz and Patrick Hutchinson. They're the authors of an article in Outside Magazine called We Quit Our Jobs to Build a Cabin. Everything Went Wrong. You go check it there at outsideonline.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash cabinbuild. We find links to resources. We can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the A1 Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives, well as thousands of articles we've written over the years. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the A1 Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the A1 Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the AWIM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.